It's a joy to worship with you, to offer songs of praise and confess our need of God's mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus and to be assured of His covenant love for us. Just to participate in that with you is a special treat. It's a great privilege to open God's Word with you again this morning. And we have found ourselves in Exodus 21 as we work our way through this book of the Old Testament and this experience, really the experience of God's people and deliverance that really shapes the life of, of the people of Israel. And they are to remember this for generation upon generation. Uh, the Lord has spoken to them audibly from the mountain, given, him, given them His law, absolute unchanging moral law. And now through Moses, He's going to apply uh, this law to specific situations, circumstances in the life of God's people. And so this, this book of the covenant gives the people some examples on how to, how to love their God, how to love each other and serve each other in this context. And so um, you know, the code that we're going to read in these next uh, few chapters uh, certainly could not address every situation, much like our laws today don't address every situation that we would face, uh, but it gives the, the rulers, the elders, some precedent on how they can um, settle disputes among the people. So a few things to keep in mind there. Uh, we read the first 11 verses here of chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these Three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the true and faithful word of our God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks that you are our God, that you have made yourself known to us, what it is you love, what it is you care about and value to us, your people, that we might know you more we might be conformed more to the likeness of You, our God, our Lord and Savior. And it is only through Christ that we come, giving You thanks and praise, and imploring Your help in understanding this Word that You've spoken to us. Lord, it does come from You, and so we know that it is for us, it is a Word that we need, and we need Your help to apply it our own hearts and lives. Lord, we ask that you would speak faithfully now through your servant. Block out that which is unhelpful and imprint this truth upon our hearts that we might grow in love and service to you, our God. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Harriet Jacobs was born in North Carolina in the year 1813, and for the first five years of her life, she lived with her parents and her brothers in relative comfort, and, and life was, uh, well, pretty good. And then a few years later, her mother died, and she realized that she was not free, that her family uh, was a slave family. And after her mother's death, the, the owner of their family um, began to really harass her and his wife and that family began to, um, to treat her very poorly. And so she actually, for her own protection, found comfort in the arms of another man and bore him two sons, which infuriated the owner who decided to move her to a different plantation to work the fields. And while she was there, she ran away before her children could be brought to her and serve as well. And uh, she ended up finding a relative and living underneath the porch in a little nine by seven, probably not much bigger than this part of the stage, uh, for a couple of years. And she would write letters to her owner asking if she could purchase some way her children. He refused, but then did sell the children to their father who allowed them to, to live in this relative's house. But because she's a fugitive slave, she can't be seen with them. And so she would watch them play through a little peephole under the front porch. Eventually, she's able to escape farther north. And, uh, and Harriet's children were able to join her after a couple of years. Um, and finally, her employer in the north is able to purchase her freedom for $300. But she knew full well the life of brutality constant fear, separation from family that was a part of slavery. Um, and she put all this experience into a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which was published in 1861, which is the first year of the Civil War. I think it's a story like Harriet's that provides a backdrop for our own understanding of slavery. When we read or we hear about slavery, we think about things like I've just described. The abuses and the families that are torn apart and the, the fear and the suffering that these families endured. You know, we talk about people as property. Well, we just we don't talk about that. Um, you know, for, for good reason. That, that's not something that... Uh, that we like to talk about. So we read a passage like this and it, it raises questions, it makes us uncomfortable, and quite frankly, I think we'd rather skip over it. Um, you know, maybe we can sort of, you know, something that looks like it's condoning slavery. Why, why would this be a part of the Book of the Covenant to have case law on slavery? Um, why would God's people need this law? Does it have any application for God's people today? Any, any principles that we need? I think the answer is, of course, yes, uh, or we wouldn't find it here in God's holy and inspired word. So that should, in itself, give us reason to pause, consider um, you know, this, this law, why this was enforced in Israel, keeping in mind that the, the penalties in Israel, how society was arranged, uh, their, their civil arrangements are going to be different than what we are in now. Um, so we can't, you know, we can't say all these, uh, 
those civil arrangements are binding on the church or the state today. We can't say that. But the principles that a law like this addresses can be applied uh, to God's people today. So I think we need to consider the parties involved, uh, the process followed, and the picture that's conveyed in these 11 verses. And the whole idea of slavery, the actual experience of being slaves, is something that's very fresh for the Israelites. It wasn't long ago that they were slaves under the, the cruel taskmaster of Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, he was a harsh master. But now all that has changed for them. The Lord's delivered them. They belong to a new master. But they were not to forget the hardship and the cruelty that they endured in Egypt. We read the, the preface in the ten words in Exodus 20. It starts that in that very way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember that. And we're going to, We read at least five times in Deuteronomy, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So as strange as that may sound to our ears, it actually seems to fit the pattern of the law here for God to, to start this book of the covenant talking about slavery and service among the people. The parties involved here are God and His chosen people, first and foremost. They belong to Him. He's their new master. They are to treat people differently than the way that they were treated in Egypt. So instead of taking advantage of others, viewing them as property just to be moved from one place to the next, they were to genuinely value and care for others. Consider their welfare just as much, if not more, than their own. Again, this is not the, the norm for nations around them by any means. There, there may have been similar laws that the nations around them had describing the relationship between a, a master and a, and a servant, but this was, this was a unique covenant code between God and His people. He's a kind and gracious master. That, that character should be not only heard, but you know, caught by the people. Not just taught, but caught. Um, and the other uh, parties in view here are the master and the servant, both male and female servants. We can translate the title, you know, it's given there as slave or servant, bond servant, uh, in this context. I think the servant is a helpful translation that avoids some of the stigma that we attach to uh, the word slave. But either could be used. So there's the master, the boss, the employer, and the slave or servant who is among God's uh, covenant people. And the law could be applied to other situations. If they had foreigners, they could come in and live with the Israelites. This could apply. But the covenant community is actually what's in view here. There's a mutual service that's being provided by the master and the servant. Talk some more about that. But I want us to see the, the care the, the care for people that comes with the parties involved here and the importance of service. We, we don't place a great deal of value on service today. Um, actually, maybe I should say that a little dif differently. We, can, we may serve and highlight our service, but we're not encouraging or promoting servanthood. You see, typically when we serve, we decide when we're going to serve. 
And we decide who we're going to serve in those arrangements. But if we are actually the servants, or we have a heart of a true servant, then those decisions begin to go away. Now someone else, the master, is the one who decides. I think that, that moves us a little closer to the heart of the Christian. A life among the community of God's people. If we're united to Christ, we've been identified with Christ, then we put the will of God and what God values above our own. So we're not just called to serve, but to be servants of the Most High God. And I know that sounds well and good, but it really grates against our self-love. It grates against our self-determination. I think with the rise in social media, and I don't mean to pick on social media as a you know, wicked tool. It seems like every time I make a reference to social media, it has negative connotations, which is probably an application if you follow the rabbit trail, but we're not going to do that. Um, but almost at least 80% of internet users um, are on social networking in some way. So the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams, and the new ones that have started since we started our service. Um, but these are sites that breed and feed a culture of self-promotion and self-love. Look at me. Like me. Affirm me. Okay, the, the selfie isn't going away anytime soon. It's very difficult to look away from ourselves and take a posture of service in a like-me world. And I know how sneaky this is. It can even be easy to promote ourselves in our service. You can get an idea of what I'm talking about. You know, you, here's a selfie. Here's me and my buddies you know, building houses in Honduras. Or here we are you know, on the beach of Haiti serving Jesus. Okay. But if we're going to be servants of Christ, if we want others to look to Him, to like Him over the like me, you know, that, that may mean that our names are not as regarded. That our reputation is not as well known. Or not as liked. It means taking up our cross, following the Lord Jesus. Um, you know, what, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Servanthood. Serving others. When we look away from ourselves, serve those around us, that, that is going to stand out without the extra click, click, click promotion. Um, it'll have a much greater impact than we could really, uh, really ever know. Um, so as we look at these parties involved, I want to consider the process here that controlled these relationships between the master and the servant. Um, this is not the forced... You know, forced labor, cruel way of, of thinking about slavery, the way that we often think about it. Um, it's not like what the people experienced in Egypt. Okay, there, there are many ways in which a person could become a, a slave or servant to another. If someone had committed a, a crime they could not pay, then maybe it was service. That would be their restitution. Um, if someone was in extreme debt or poverty, they could enter into this type of relationship of service. 
And I think that was the most common that we have in view here. Someone chooses to be an indentured service in return for food and clothing and accommodations. So we're not going to say that it was a desirable situation or the the first thing that a family would consider. But it did provide some stability. It provided some sustenance for them. Service was voluntary, unless it was you know, sentenced for a crime. Voluntary and temporary. And just, so just a few verses later, in verse 16, which we didn't read this morning, it says we read that, that involuntary forced labor uh, that treats people as property, that is actually forbidden by God's law. So this is not intended to be a forced situation, but intended to offer security to those in more desperate situations. So the goal, the goal is restoration. The goal is to get folks back on their feet, restore families. And it could be longer, but it's intended to be temporary. Maybe you caught the the Sabbath pattern there as we read. The pattern of work and rest that God has established. It's built in here, verse 2. We learn later in God's law that the land could be worked for six years, but then it would, on the seventh year, the land would rest. The year of Jubilee follows that pattern. So the slave would work for six years, and then the seventh year um, would go free. So just another way to encourage dependence upon God, to see God's provision in times of work and in times of rest. He provides what they need. So voluntary, temporary designed to protect the family unit and those most vulnerable within the family. Uh, If a guy enters into this contract and he's single, then he leaves single. If he's married and begins his service, he remains married. And it gets more complicated if the boss allows him to marry one who is already a slave. Because now both male servant and female servant have obligations to the boss. And he's obligated to provide for them So when his term of service was ended, he couldn't just walk away with his whole family. Um, There was still um, some protection there for uh, the boss or the master. Um, And the male servant could then wait until uh, wife and children's obligations were fulfilled or he could purchase from the master um, or he could continue uh, to work permanently for his boss, which seems to be a more desirable situation given the, the details that follow in verses 5 and 6. I, I compare it really, our, our own military enlistment system is probably a good comparison. Um, you enlist for three to four years and you're provided with food and accommodations, but when that enlistment is up, maybe you want to continue serving, serve a career in this way. Um, but mutually beneficial. Um, this was... This was part of the the law code that protected the master and the boss. What's interesting is that's the only one that protects uh, the owner, the boss. Everything else is directed toward the servant and their protection. Including verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So process here. It's important to remember that in Israel this time, marriages are arranged. In fact, they've been arranged in most cultures since humanity began. Um, So there's a bride price that that would be paid to this woman's biological family or the family that she was uh, a part of and protected by. And I know this is hard for us to understand in our 
you know, with our freedoms and our laws that regulate you know, our society and the independence that we have among men and women. Okay, but at this time and place, if a woman did not belong to a household, either her own or the household of, of a master, a boss, then she's extremely vulnerable. There's little care, little protection uh, that she would have. So just running around free was a bad idea. So she needed this, this identity with a family, either her own or another. Uh, so a family that was poor then could, could actually secure a better life for a daughter with this type of arrangement. Uh, entering into this uh, servant relationship. And the intention then is that the boss, the, she, he would be the one that would marry her. Um, she would serve, but she would be cared for as a wife. And nowhere in the text do we read or should we assume that this was forced, that she went you know, kicking and screaming against her will, or that dad could just choose to sell her off. It's not there. Uh, that's not permitted. Um, and then if the boss takes back his intention to, to marry her for whatever reason, then he couldn't just do whatever he wanted with her. She could be redeemed, her obligation paid for, and marry uh, someone else. Uh, but if she does marry the boss who may already be married or widowed, um, she's not to be treated like a second-class citizen or a second-class wife, um, even though she was a servant in the household, to be honored, cared for uh, as his wife, with the food and clothing and the marital intimacy that goes along with that. Um, so did this allow for more than one wife in Israel? Yes, it did. Does this promote more than one wife in a polygamous you know, marriage situation. No. No, it does not. Uh, this is not a prescription for human relationships or for marriage in particular. Remember in Matthew 19, uh, when asked about divorce, Jesus refers to the law of Moses as actually making accommodation, allowing for the sinfulness of Israel. But the motivation of God's people isn't always pure all the time then and now. <laughs> and so even though the law may permit certain uh, situations, it doesn't mean it's prescribing or encouraging those situations. Uh, does that not underscore the need for forgiveness? The need for um, life under the new covenant where the law is obeyed and the ideal is upheld on behalf of God's people. Uh, so some principles are reminded of in the process that's at work here. The God of Israel, your God, my God, is gracious. And He wants His people to treat one another with the same kind of grace that He has given to them. So that the, you know, this form of slavery, service, was intended to be constructive. It was intended to be beneficial to the community as a whole. Mutual agreement and care for each other in this process. God cares for, values His people. And because this reads so much like property transaction to us, we can miss that. We can miss that the people aren't property. Neither party in this relationship can just do whatever they want to do. So even in a passage that appears to be condoning slavery, it's, actually, it's chopping the legs off of any argument for abuse or trafficking or forced labor. This was not to be among God's 
a chosen people set apart to Him. So we need to hear this. Others need to hear that God loves and cares for His children. Um, both men and women. His sons and His daughters. I think sometimes you know, a text like this will be taken and say, well, you see right here, God is sexist. He's out to get women. Um, this is just how out of touch the Bible is. Uh, now this is typically coming from folks who are not spending much time in their Bibles. Uh, certainly not intending to understand what the Bible means. But I also think that for many of us, we read this text, we go, oh great, how am I going to explain this? Well, let, let me encourage you to welcome, welcome the challenge if it arises. Uh, say, great, let me explain what the Bible says about service in Israel. And how God provided for His people in this way. Nothing like slavery that you're thinking of, or the degrading of women that you assume. It's actually quite the opposite of that. And those who want to hear will listen. And those who don't, you let them go and keep praying. So we looked at the parties, process involved a little bit. There's a powerful picture here that we just cannot miss. Nothing less than a picture of salvation the life that we have in Christ. If a servant wanted to continue to serve his master, he could do that. He could serve for life. But it was a commitment that 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 servant had to take seriously, that the boss, the employer, had to take seriously. So there was a formal declaration that was made, and then it was time for an ear piercing uh, before the Lord, uh, before designated witnesses. We see another example of this in Ruth chapter 4, where there's an exchange of sandals, kind of serving that same purpose. Um, this, this, this piercing was the sign of their, of their commitment, a reminder to both the servant and the master of the obligations that they had. You think, well, why, why would a slave do this? What, what could motivate this type of lifelong commitment. He's not forced to do this. We see it there. I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. He loves his master. He's been treated well by his master. He's been cared for by his master. Provided for him. And if you have a master like this, a loving and generous master, and that's worth serving. That's when he wants to serve. I mean, he could have left. You know, once his contract is, is over, found freedom in other places on his own. But in this case, he says, no, my freedom is found here with my master. Psalm 40, uh, verses 6 through 8 we hear a word from David where he says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and a sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll, in the, scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So in the clear sense, we say that God has opened David's ears. He now has an ability to hear and understand and obey. But this language is actually my ear you dig. You know, it's not an airtight 
argument, but, but could David have this practice in mind? Just as, as a picture, as a metaphor for his commitment and lifelong obedience to the Lord God. I love you. I delight to do your will. I'm your servant. When we get to the New Testament, Romans 1 is a great example. We find the Apostle Paul introducing himself as a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He was bound to Christ, committed to serving Him for life. Again, our, our passage this morning is a background to this. That he can say this. Paul was a servant who loved his master because his master had so loved him. Given himself for him. And that, that's a real twist here. That's the shocking reality of this relationship. Master-slave. The master, the boss, the, the Lord God takes on the role of slave for you and for me. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Not to get some service credit, but to be the servant of His Father. He submits to the Father's will in everything. Not my will, but your will be done. And it took Him right to the cross. Where He is pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. This is the mercy and love of our Master. A master who not only cares for us and provides for us, a Master who has died for us. That is why Paul could say, I love my master. I'm his slave for life. Can you say that today? Do you know the freedom of serving the one you've been made to serve? A few chapters later in Romans, Paul says that once we were slaves to sin, trapped in Egypt, but now committed for life, obeying the Lord willingly from the heart. We are slaves to righteousness. As we offer ourselves to God as slaves to righteousness, we actually find the freedom that we have so much longed for. There's a story of a northerner. Some believe it was Abraham Lincoln. He wanted to go to a slave auction just to observe, and he what he saw just disgusted him as human beings are put on the auctioning block and sold as property. He saw a young woman standing on the block and she stared with absolute contempt and hatred at those around her. This was just another opportunity for her to be humiliated, abused, something she'd experienced her whole life. And so the bidding started and this man decided to offer a bid. And he was outbid, and so he bid again. And he kept bidding until he won the bid and was handed the title of ownership for this young woman. The woman came down off of the block and stood next to him and just stared at him. Oh, she hated him. Wanted nothing to do with him. So what are you going to do with me now? He said, I'm going to set you free. Free? Free from? Free for what? He said, just free. Completely free. Free to do what I want to do? Yes. He said, free to do what you want to do. 
free to say whatever I want to say? Yes. Free to say what you want to say. And then her, her eyes squinted with great skepticism. She said, free to go wherever I want to go? Yes. You're free to go wherever you want to go. Then I'm coming with you. As she smiled. How can we not love Him? How can we not bind ourselves to Christ? The rest of our lives. He has set us free. How I love my Master. Let's pray. Lord God, may it be the cry of our hearts. Oh, we want to go with You. We want to follow You. We want to serve You. You have set us free. Lord, thank You for this indescribable gift. We see Your grace and this law code to your people, Lord, help us to apply it in our own hearts, in our own lives, that we may be true servants, slaves to righteousness. We have a good and gracious and loving Master. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.